I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and this is Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he sent forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, it is uh, great to be here. Wonderful to um, have uh, sung a song that is based on that Bible reading too. Did you notice that, that the song that we sang was uh, based directly on Ephesians uh, chapter 1? It is so good to be here. Uh, and I'm uh, glad to be able to share Ephesians with you today. Um, we, uh, uh, for a few years, our family lived in Durham, which is in the north of England. Uh, and at one point, my son's school provided us with tickets to see a Premier League football match in Sunderland. So we thought, okay, we great idea to go. And we had a neighbour called Patrick. And uh, we said to Patrick, you know, how would we actually get to the Stadium of Light, which was in Sunderland, which is where uh, we were going to see uh, this match. And I knew he was a big football fan, and he told us that there was a bus that actually left from right outside our door. And we thought, that's great. He told us where to catch it from and when it would come. So the day arrived, 
and we hopped on the bus with Patrick and uh, the bus turned out to be, uh, as we got on, we didn't realise this, but it turned out to be the Sunderland supporters bus. So uh, as we got on, um, we quickly realised that we were part of something much bigger than we had originally realised. And so at that point, we became Sunderland supporters. Uh, Of course, that was the safest option for us. Uh, So we rode to the match as Sunderland supporters. Uh, At the match, we cheered and we booed as Sunderland supporters. And uh, on the bus home, after a disappointing one-all draw, we commiserated as Sunderland supporters uh, with that gut-wrenching regret that yet again our team uh, had lost. You see, at the start, we thought we were going for a bus ride. uh, And, you know, that's a bit like being... A Christian. Uh, are, are you a Christian? Are you someone who owns the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? I would say that uh, most likely most of us here are. So have you hopped on the on the Christian bus, so to speak? Now you may have become a Christian earlier in life or, or grown up as a Christian. I was just speaking to some people earlier and we were talking about how they had come uh, to, to be saved, to be Christians. So you may have become a Christian more recently. There may be people here, of course, who aren't sure if they are Christian. I'm glad that you're here as well. But if you are a Christian, if you've hopped on the bus, do you know where that bus is going? Do you realise that actually being a Christian is part of something huge, something, something very big, something that matters, in fact, for the entire universe? We're looking today at the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And Ephesians is an amazing letter. It really is. Uh, Paul is writing it from prison, most likely writing it from prison in Rome. Uh, And and Ephesians is a little bit different to Paul's other letters. Uh, That's because it's not written necessarily just to one particular church or just to one particular individual. Um, It's not just written to people in Ephesus. It seems to be broader and bigger than that. What what makes me say that? Well, Paul had spent two years at least in Ephesus teaching and preaching uh, in this city uh, which is in uh, modern-day Turkey. But in this letter, as we read it, there are no direct personal statements. Uh, And he doesn't talk about their exact circumstances. In fact, he he says, you know, I assume that you've heard this, I assume that you've heard that. So it seems that Ephesians is broader, um, that, that Paul is writing to Christians, uh, yes, including Ephesus, but, but broader in and around Ephesus, throughout the area of what was ancient uh, Asia Minor, probably the place that we know today as Turkey, but maybe uh, beyond that. He's addressing it uh, to a broad range of people. It's a letter with a big audience. But it's it's not just because it's got a big audience. In fact, it's a letter with very, very big ideas, huge ideas. And in Ephesians, Paul spells out God's great plans for his universe. And he helps us to see how we fit into those plans. Now, the letter has six chapters. There are three talks today. In the first talk, we'll be looking at chapters one and two. Uh, in the second talk, chapters three and four. In the third talk, chapters five and six. Uh, we're not going to be able to look at every detail in the letter, of course, uh, but we'll be looking at some really key 
uh, areas and key passages within that letter. So let's start now by looking at Ephesians chapter 1, uh, shall we, the, the, the chapter that uh, Chris just read for us. And we'll see here that we are part of God's great plan for the universe. And that is a good and wonderful thing. Did you notice the, the, the letter begins with praise and joy and it tells us that we are greatly blessed in Christ. It's why a, a praise song like the song that we just sang is a song that can come straight from Ephesians chapter 1 because it is a, 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 a letter that begins with this praise and joy. We are greatly blessed in Christ. You see verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessings. Now when you hear the word blessing, what, what do you think of? Uh, often uh, when we talk about blessings, we can be talking uh, about um, good things, but, but earthly blessings, don't we? Um, we could think about health or, or family or happiness uh, or a good reputation or the blessings of food, the blessings of, of comfort, the blessings of a roof over our heads in the middle of the, the rain, uh, the blessings of love. And, and uh, they're things that um, are, are good things, um, but things that we don't necessarily all have, uh, do we? We don't necessarily have all those things. We long uh, for them. And these earthly blessings are good things, and sometimes God gives them to us. But that is not actually what Paul is talking about here when he talks about blessings. He's talking about, do you see, spiritual blessings. Amazing things. Amazing things that come to us above and beyond this world. And he says that we have them all already in Christ. These are not things that Christians long for in the future. These things are things that Christians already have. What uh, spiritual blessings is Paul talking about here? Well, there's there's lots of them. Uh, and in fact, um, verses 3 to 14 is um, actually in, in the original language one big long sentence. It's like Paul is pouring blessings out onto the page as he writes it, uh, pouring it out. Uh, it's a bit like my wife's family at Christmas time. Uh, I, in the family I grew up in, uh, with my parents at Christmas time, it was a bit of an it was an it was an ordered affair. Where, where we would gather around the Christmas tree, and you know, after our after our Christmas lunch, and we'd hand out presents one by one, uh, and we'd say, you know, here's a present for you, and we watch, you know, present present for my sister, and we watch my sister open her presents, and she'd be thankful, and then pass on to me, and I'd open the present, and I'd be thankful, and mum and dad. It was an orderly. Um, affair and uh, you know she'd get her cabbage patch kid and we'd all be able to appreciate it but when I got married I, I realized that my wife's family is quite different at Christmas time it's like it's like a gift frenzy a present frenzy so you have your lunch then you gather around the tree and then they just want to love each other as, as you know so much and they just want to give presents out so the presents are kind of flying around here's one for you here's one for you and there's one over there and there's one over there and isn't it amazing and they just want to bless each other as soon as possible it's quick it's chaotic and it's great fun as well it's a little bit like Paul here I think as he talks about these blessings he's overflowing with joy about the spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus Christ the gifts that's actually what the word grace means. It means a gift, gifts from God. And these gifts are amazing. 
God loved us and chose us before the foundation of the world. Uh, Paul talks about predestination, but he doesn't treat it as, as an annoying problem or a philosophical issue or conundrum. He just says it's great, it's a gift because it means that salvation is up to God, not up to us. And another gift is adoption, which means that Christians have an intimate relationship with God. We are his children, where we can call God Father, not just a distant, angry being, but but Father. And forgiveness of sins through Jesus' death. When we sin, we know that we are forgiven because God loves us that Jesus died on the cross to take those sins away so that we are not facing God's judgment. We can live with God as our loving Father. Amazing, isn't it? And all those things that I mentioned, you could, you could unpack and have whole, you know, weeks thinking and months and years thinking about. Amazing, isn't it? And all those blessings come in one person, in Christ. In the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12, God had promised that all nations on the earth would be blessed in Abraham. And now Paul is saying that God has fulfilled that promise in Christ, Abraham's offspring. If you have Jesus Christ, you have it all. All these amazing gifts and blessings. And it's not just that you might have these later, you have it all now. Now you might say that you think you prefer to have some some earthly blessings, health, wealth, comfort, a home, those, those good things. That is Right, but friends, that's actually not where the action is at. If you've seen a young baby, uh, it's happened with our uh, children when they were young babies, they get a beautiful present. You give it to the baby and the baby, infant, looks at the present, opens it up, grabs the paper and starts playing with the paper (laughs) and puts the the present to one side. The doll or whatever beautiful thing uh, you've given him. Well, that's what it would be like if we only concentrated on earthly blessings and just thought, of those earthly blessings. They're, they're good, but it's, it's, it's where, where the action is at is these spiritual blessings. And we have these great gifts from God, chosen, adopted as God's children, forgiveness, love from God. We have it all in Christ if we come to trust in him and come to him. It doesn't mean that life isn't hard. Yes, Paul talks about that later as well, but he wants us to see all the things we have. And that's why Paul prays the way he does down in verses 15 to 19. He prays for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. He prays that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened. He wants us to lift our gaze. He wants you to lift your gaze beyond these small things, to look up, to widen our horizons and to see and remember the amazing blessings that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, to see to see the wonder, to see the mountains, to see the, the vistas of God's blessings in Christ. And then he goes even further. These horizons expand even more. Because as Paul goes on, he shows us that God's great plan for the universe is that plan to unite all things in Christ. See verses 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. These are even broader horizons for us to lift our gaze to. The the, the broadest, the biggest, the question of what life is all about, what it's all for, is answered in these verses. 
Paul tells you what the purpose of your life is. Now, he doesn't tell you exactly what job you're going to have or who you're going to marry or what will happen to your children. He doesn't tell you those things. But he tells you something far more important about the purpose of your life. He tells you that your life is all about Jesus. And he tells you that God is at working everything towards that end. The world, including our lives, is here to serve Jesus. Down in verse 20 and 23, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and he's ascended to heaven. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is just hanging around in heaven twiddling his thumbs. No, ascended to heaven means he's victorious. The fact that Jesus has risen from the dead means he's the great king of the world. He's greater than everyone and everything in the universe. He's greater than the the powers and the authorities. He's greater and bigger than anything anyone could possibly imagine. And right now what God is doing is bringing his world to that point of serving and honouring Jesus. And Jesus will return and every knee will bow to him. Whether willingly or unwillingly, all things will, will be united in Christ. And in that, in the end, on that day, that will be seen and obvious. And do you see what is close to the centre of his plans? Verse 20 to 23, it's the church, it's us. The people who have come to trust and know Jesus and receive these spiritual blessings. We exist especially to make him great. He is the head, we are the body. And so your life is all about him. That's huge, isn't it? But it tells us how we are to live our lives. You see, if you know what life is all about, if you know where it's going, you know what to do with life, don't you? Like when you get flat pack furniture from Ikea. You know, um, you buy it, you get it home, and you pull out all those little bits of, I'm not sure if you've done this, pull out those little bits of particle board and all those little metal bits, and it looks like a big jumbled mess, doesn't it? And the only way that you're going to know what to do is if you have the instructions, and on the instructions is a picture of what it's supposed to look like. If you don't keep the end product in mind, you know, if you don't follow the instructions, if you just say, here's the flat pack furniture, I'm just going to put it together, don't worry about the instructions, um, and out of experience, you know, many of us, I can say yes to, I've got that experience. It's what happens is that the bits don't fit together and you end up in a mess. I built a kid's bunk bed uh, once from Ikea. Two hours of fitting and Allen key turning and only at the end realised that they couldn't get in, actually get into the bed because it was a bunk bed because I put the long bit on the short side and the short bit on the long side or, you know, they just couldn't get into the bed and I had to pull it apart and put it all back together again from scratch. We need to keep the end product in mind as we build the furniture and the same is true in life. What is the end? God tells us what life is about here. The end is all things being united in Christ. It's about Jesus and that's the direction to build our lives in towards Jesus. But what does that mean? How does that work? You know, has God just given us the end product? No, we've got, we've got more than that too. We've got the key steps in Ephesians. We, we know how God is working out his plan. And Paul tells us that the main way that he's doing that, the main way he is uniting all things in Jesus Christ, how he puts his plan for the universe into operation, is through the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached to the nations. You see verses 11 to 14. 
in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Once you've read the book of Acts in the Bible recently, the book of Acts that talked about the gospel going out to the world after Jesus has risen from the dead, actually these verses are a lot like that description in Acts. as the message about Jesus went out to the world starting in Jerusalem. As Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples, he appeared to to Israelites, God's special people in the Old Testament, people whom God had promised an inheritance and and great blessing. And those disciples in Jerusalem were the first to hope in Christ, those those apostles. And after he ascended uh, to heaven, Jesus poured out his spirit on those Israelite apostles and disciples and he showed them that God's great promises in the Old Testament uh, to Israel were being fulfilled. But it didn't stop there. Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't just pour out his blessing on these first ones, this small group of disciples in Jerusalem, these Israelites. No, through his spirit he made sure that his blessing of Jesus Christ was preached from Jerusalem to the surrounding area and to the ends of the earth through Israelites like Peter and Paul. And this message about Jesus was called the word of truth because it tells us the truth about God and his world. It's called the gospel of salvation because it tells us about salvation. It tells us how to escape God's judgment and be forgiven through Jesus. And this gospel was heard and believed in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in Acts we read about how even the Gentiles, those who were not Jews, Gentiles, they received the Holy Spirit as well as a guarantee that they too could inherit God's blessings through Christ. And Paul is saying, even these people in, in far off around Ephesus area, these Gentiles who were nowhere near Israel, even they had heard it and believed they were caught up in God's great promises and plans for his world to unite all things under Jesus Christ, starting with people who believe and trust and are saved and are forgiven. And this gospel has come to us in Australia. The ends of the earth, you'd think, according to those who live in Jerusalem. Has it come to you? Because if it's come to you, this gospel, and if you've heard it and been forgiven, do you see that this gospel is not just a message about your own personal security and forgiveness? Yes, it is. It is about personal salvation. It is about being a child of God. It's a wonderful thing. But it's bigger too. This gospel is being preached in the world, heard by people in the world, and it is a part of God's great plan for his universe. The risen Lord, victorious in the heavens, bringing people to know and trust him, and it is still happening today. And that's what Ephesians is about. That's what we need to orient our lives to, and that's what we need to follow. How how do we do that? How do we orient our lives to it? And how does the gospel of Jesus Christ change our lives and the lives of those around us. Well, the rest of Ephesians shows us that. It shows us that it happens in many practical ways. 
And now we're going to move into Ephesians chapter 2 and I'll ask Chris to read uh, to us from Ephesians chapter 2. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived once in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made by uh, made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So as we come now into chapter 2, we see that one key thing that the Gospel brings is peace. It brings personal peace. It brings peace with others, which ultimately comes from peace with God. Now, we human beings try to achieve peace in various ways, don't we? Last year in Sydney, just a few suburbs away from where I live, there was uh, an attempt to bring peace. It was a statue that was set up uh, that said, at least, the people who set it up said that they were trying to achieve peace, but which failed miserably. 
in its stated aim. It was a statue, um, and it was a statue that was set up in the grounds um, of, a, of, a, of a church, but I, I think it was not set up by the church itself. And it was a statue that was commemorating um, or, or remembering um, the so-called uh, comfort women, uh, women who uh, the Japanese used as sexual slaves in World War II. Uh, now, many of these women were Korean, uh, and the statue was actually planned by the Korean, uh, a Korean group called the Peace Statue Establishing Committee. Uh, but the statue did not actually establish peace. What it did was it created massive social tensions. Uh, members of the Japanese community objected. They said, oh, it's, it's, it's racist. It paints Japanese people as rapists and murderers and the Koreans were saying, yes, well, that's what actually happened. And the Minister for Multiculturalism was brought in to try to stop it, uh, creating community conflicts. Now, um, there were terrible things that did happen. And no matter where you might stand on the issue of the statue, it shows us something, doesn't it? It shows us that our, our best attempts at peace often do not work. It's not easy, is it? You know, there's, there's technical peace. But these groups, the, these particular groups of Koreans and Japanese people, they're not reconciled to each other, are they? There are deep hurts. There is long-standing historical emotional scars and violence here. And you can't achieve peace just by saying warm, fuzzy things. You can't just say they wish people would just get along with each other. It's not that easy. And that's true on a, on a wider scale, isn't it? And it's true on the personal level too. You may know all too well yourself the scars uh, that come from being hurt. How could such scars ever be healed if people have hurt you so deeply? Or if you've hurt others? It's not just a matter of getting on and pretending it didn't happen, is it? It's how can true peace be achieved? Well, Paul says it can happen and it does happen. And it happens through the gospel. And that's why we've got this order in chapter 2. Chapter 2 has got two halves, verses 1 to 10, then verses 11 to 22. And in the second half, Paul says a lot about peace. But in the first, in the first half, Paul writes about something, something else, something fundamental, even more fundamental that needs to be understood before we talk about peace. In verses 1 to 10, Paul writes about the gospel, the message of salvation by grace through faith. Uh, back in chapter 1, verse 13, remember Paul had talked about the gospel of your salvation. Now in chapter 2, he goes into detail about what he means by that. And the climax is verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And if you've not heard that, that gospel message before, and you, you may not have, these, these verses are an excellent summary. It actually starts with bad news, the gospel. The bad news is that, verses 1 to 3, Paul reminds us that by ourselves we are spiritually dead. Left to ourselves, we're simply sinners. Living for ourselves, living just for our own desires. And we might think that as sinners we are free to, to choose, but actually we're slaves to our desires, doing what our sinful desires want us to do. 
And that means that left to ourselves, we are condemned by God. We're under God's wrath, his judgment, children of wrath. And that's true of everyone. Paul goes out of his way to make that point in verses 1 to 3. He says, not just you, but we, every everybody are in the same position. He's probably referring at this point to both Jews and Gentiles, Israel and the other nations. And the point is that everybody is a sinner. Everybody by themselves is under God's wrath. But the good news, the amazing news, is that even when we were dead, we were made alive with Christ, forgiven of sins. But even more than forgiven of sins, raised with Christ, seated with him in his victorious reign. And that means that if you trust in Jesus Christ, you've been given the most amazing privilege. Jesus is alive. He is risen from the dead and you can look forward to that new life, eternal life forever, like Jesus. Jesus is even now seated in the heavenly places. That's another way of talking about Jesus' victory. That's what victorious kings do. They sit down because their work is done. How Jesus is above and beyond and reigning over all of God's creation and those who trust in Jesus are seated with him. We have that same privilege, secure in Jesus. You see, you haven't just been rescued from death, that yes, been rescued from death if you're a Christian, rescued from judgment, that's great, but also you have a whole new life to live in Jesus. And that life starts even now. And so, Yes, you can talk about the gospel as being rescued from God's judgment and having our sins forgiven, and that is absolutely true. Our sins are forgiven, it's so incredible. But forgiveness is the first half of the story. And it's not just that we've been saved from sin, it's that we've been saved for a whole new life to live in Jesus. Service of him. And this gospel declares that our forgiveness and our new life is entirely God's grace. His gift to us. In other words, it's not our own doing. We can't contribute anything at all to our own salvation. The only thing we've contributed to it is our sin. The thing that we need to be saved from that made us spiritually dead and unable to save ourselves. And the thing about dead people is they can't make themselves alive. We've got nothing to boast about in ourselves so important to realise, it's so important to remember that that's what being a Christian is, a saved sinner. But when we realise that, it enables us to live a new life in service of God, of Jesus. God didn't save us just so that we could we could hang around twiddling our thumbs, you see. He didn't save us so that we could just go back into the gutter and live however we want and be dead again. No, God saved us so that we could do good works for others. Good works not to earn our salvation, but good works because that's what he saved people to do. And I, I do want to, I, I, I can't stress this point enough really, especially this year, if, I'm not sure if you know, is the 500th year uh, anniversary of, of the Reformation, the beginning of the Reformation, the 500th anniversary of that day when a young monk called Martin Luther in Germany started a debate by pinning 95 uh, debating points to a university church notice board. 
Uh, the 95 Theses, they were called, and they swept Europe and they, indeed they swept the world by storm because they brought people back to the Bible and they showed them the core, the core truths. And one really core truth is what's called justification only by faith. That our standing before God has nothing to do with our works, nothing to do with our performance. It's entirely dependent on God's salvation of us, making dead people alive, forgiving sinners, raising us from the dead and seating us with Christ. And it has to do with faith, trust in our loving God through Jesus Christ, not our works. And that truth needs to be heard again and again because it's in constant danger of being forgotten or muddied or smoothed over in a way that becomes lost. And if that happens, it's fatal, not just for our churches but for our own Christian lives because it means that we rely on ourselves rather than God. You you might ask, well hold on, if I am saved entirely by grace through faith, what's the incentive for doing good? Surely I need some incentive, you know, surely I've got to have this incentive of avoiding God's punishment Otherwise, I'll, you know, otherwise I will just do whatever I want. Well, maybe I can just go back to doing whatever I want. But no, if you think that way, let me tell you, you haven't understood what faith in Jesus Christ means. That's the question that dead people ask who haven't been raised from the dead. It's a question who come from spiritually dead people, or at least that's the kind of question that, um, if you have it, you might think, well, you know, why am I asking that question? If you trust in Jesus Christ. It's not just that you've been giving a get-out-of-jail-free card for heaven. It means that you've been raised with him, seated with him. You've got a whole new life to live and a whole new creation to look forward to. It's like God has taken beggars lying in the gutter and brought us into his home and said, here you are in my home and you have an honoured role in my home. Live for me now. Why would we want to go back to lying in the gutter, to being dead? If you get that right, it changes everything. And you know, one really important thing that changes, uh, there's a lot of things that changes the way that we think, the way that we, we can not be guilty before God, and one really important thing that changes that Paul talks about here is how we view one another, how we relate to one another. And that's why the gospel of salvation is a gospel, a message that brings peace. The gospel of salvation brings peace. Verses 16 to 17, Paul speaks about Christ's death on the cross and he says that what Christ was doing on the cross was to, verses 16 to 17, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. See, the cross of Jesus Christ And the preaching of that cross, the the preaching of that message of Jesus' death on the cross to different groups. Actually, this this part of Ephesians is speaking especially about peace between two uh, particular groups of people. He's speaking about the Jews and Gentiles of his time. He's speaking about people who came from God's ancient people Israel, from the Jews, and people who didn't come from God's ancient people Israel, Gentiles. And in the Old Testament, if you read it, you see this great hostility between Israel and the nations, between Jews and Gentiles. And that was true in Jesus' day and Paul's day. Where did that hostility come from? Well, Jews despised 
the Gentiles. They were often afraid of Gentiles because Jews understood themselves to be God's holy and special and pure people with a special temple and, and, and worship and that's what God had given to them. And they knew that Gentiles were immoral, they were impure, they were not holy, they were sinners and they were without hope, without God in the world. And so that hostility between Jews and Gentiles was expressed in various ways. There were wars, there was bloodshed in history between Israel and many other nations. You read it, there were the massacres. And at this time, Jews and Gentiles called each other derogatory names as well. Using names, in fact, and this is explaining what's here, that, that using their genitals based on God's command to Abraham to circumcise himself and his children. And so often Jews were called the circumcision by Gentiles as a hostile thing, and Jews called Gentiles the uncircumcision, which was also a term of abuse. And the hostility was expressed even in the Temple of Jerusalem. You go to the Temple of Jerusalem at the time, the Gentiles weren't allowed into the inner courts of the temple because according to the Jews they were unclean, they were dirty, they were defiled. And in fact there was a war between the court of the Gentiles and the inner court. Uh, and it, they, so the Gentiles could go so far but they couldn't actually get into the temple itself. And there was an inscription next to it and this inscription is recorded for us in ancient historians, it's recorded for us in Josephus, and actually archaeologists have found uh, an example of this inscription, and, and it's there, it's, it's currently in the Istanbul Archaeology Museums. And this inscription reads, well, I'll read the English, no, uh, the English translation, no foreigner is to enter within the balustrade round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will only have himself to blame for his inevitable death. I mean, it's a threat. They're saying, you come through, we'll kill you. And the Roman authorities would probably have overlooked it. Do you see the walls of hostility here? See, it was a real wall, a literal wall in the temple, but that pointed to a wider wall of hostility. Jews understood they were close to God, they were holy, they were special, the Gentiles, they were sinners. There was hostility, enmity, bitter rivalry. How, rivalry. How could there ever be such a hope of peace in that situation? Well, for those Jews and Gentiles who heard the gospel and trusted in Jesus' death on the cross, peace did come. Verse 13 and 14. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did Jesus' death bring peace? How did the gospel bring peace because Jesus' death on the cross for our sins removes the hostility. How does it do that? The, the gospel of salvation tells us that Jesus died for our sins. The gospel proclaims to us that Jesus' death brings what? Forgiveness and gives us a whole new life to live. And it tells us that our salvation is by grace, through, through faith, it's not of works, which means we've got nothing to boast in when it comes to God. And that means that when we think of ourselves and we think of others, then we cannot, like many of the Jews of Paul's day, claim that we are therefore God's pure, amazing, special, holy people and other people are not. Because we can't say that we're always the goodies and they're always the baddies. We can't do that. 
We can't say they deserve God's wrath and we don't deserve it because we're good. No, the Gospel teaches us that in ourselves, all of us are dead in sin. And when it comes to God, we're all the baddies. All of us are baddies. And the Gospel teaches us that the only way any of us can be saved is to be forgiven of our sin and raised up and given a new life so that in Jesus we're made holy and forgiven. We're God's holy people together. And that is actually bigger than any hostility than we can think of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. What it teaches us is that despite the fact that we might want to think we're good, no, we're bigger sinners than we could ever imagine. And that our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ is bigger than we can ever imagine. And so it overcomes, in fact, one of the most fundamental problems in God's world. And it's mighty powerful because it means when I think of others, when I think of you, I don't think, oh well, I'm a good person, you're a bad person, I need to be hostile towards you. What I do is I think, well, I'm a sinner who's been saved by grace. If you're a Christian, you are too. If you're not, I want you to know that salvation by grace. Did you hear of those dreadful attacks by the Islamic State terrorist group on Palm Sunday just a few months ago, last month, um, against Coptic Christians in Egypt? Did you hear that news? And did you hear the amazing, incredible response of many of those Christians who forgave them? Nassim Fahim was a man who died in the terrorist blast at St. Mark's Cathedral in Alexandria. And his widow was interviewed on the highly prominent talk show hosted by Amar Adib. And this is what she said, with her children beside her, by the way. She said, I'm not angry at the ones who did this. I'm telling him, may God forgive you and we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. You put my husband in a place I couldn't have dreamed of. And that confession stunned the talk show host and many Muslims throughout the nation. How could this woman have done this? How could she just pronounce her forgiveness? Well, it's not because she pretended it didn't happen. It was awful. And it really is awful. No, it's not because she was trying to be nice either. No. I mean, it did happen. And it is terrible. And those ISIS people need to be brought before to account before the authorities. They need to answer before God. The killing must stop. And I'm sure if she was asked to testify against them, then she would. The hostility is huge and it is real. But the reason that she should, could forgive is because she knows something far bigger, far greater, even than that. Jesus has forgiven her sin. Jesus has raised her and her husband to life. And when we attempted to hate, when we attempted to hate even our own Christian brothers and sisters, this is what we need to remember, isn't it? Uh, yes, you may have been hurt. You may have been hurt very badly by someone. And yes, you may need to, to speak to them or you may need to get closure somehow. You may be 
waiting for them to admit it, to, to repent, and, and that is right. You, you, we may need to, to get human justice done on some scale. That is right. It's not about sweeping it under the carpet. At times that is necessary and right and good, but even then we need to remember that there is something even bigger, something greater than our hostility. There is our own forgiveness in Jesus. And there is the fact that we have a whole new life to live. And even when the hurts are smaller, the gospel is the answer. Remember Jesus. Remember what he's done for you. Remember that gift. The gospel brings salvation and the gospel brings peace. Peace between us and God and because of that, peace between one another. Not perfectly this side of eternity and it is a peace that's true and real. And it's a real difference. It needs to make a real difference in our lives and the lives of others. So this gospel of salvation is huge, isn't it? It brings peace, peace with God through Jesus' death and resurrection, but also peace with one another, which is actually a fulfilment of the great promises in the Old Testament. And friends, that's just one of the dimensions, one of the aspects of God's great plan for the universe in uniting all things under the gospel of his, uh, under his son Jesus Christ. The horizons of God's plans are great and large. We'll see even more over the coming day as we continue to look at Ephesians. Let's pray. I think we should pray the prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. Father, we praise you for the faith and love of our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we pray that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us a spirit of wisdom and knowledge of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you've called us, what are the glorious riches of your glorious, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.